The New Frontiers in Functional Medicine podcast is proudly sponsored by Designs for Health. Designs for Health is a family-owned professional brand offered exclusively to healthcare professionals and their patients. For over 25 years, they have been the healthcare professional's trusted source for research-backed nutritional products. Their guiding philosophy, science first, is demonstrated by a commitment to research-driven products, synergistic formulations, and meaningful quantities of therapeutic ingredients. Find them at www.designsforhealth.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I'm Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. Today, I'm delighted to have with me Dr. Lise Elshuler. Uh, Dr. Elshuler is a naturopathic physician. She's also a fellow of the American Board of Naturopathic Oncology. Uh, again, we're going to be focusing on cancer, uh, and Dr. Elshuler has lots to offer us uh, in this arena, and you are probably actually already familiar with her work. Um, she practices naturopathic oncology. She maintains a uh, practice called Naturopathic Specialists, LLC, and you can access information on that uh, with this podcast. She's the co-author of Definitive Guide to Cancer and Definitive Guide to Thriving After Cancer. Uh, Definitive Guide to Cancer, if you don't have it, has been a great resource for me in my practice, and also it's a really nice reference for patients. Uh, Dr. Alshuler is the executive director of TAP Integrative, a nonprofit educational resource for integrative practitioners. She co-hosts a radio show, Five to Thrive Live, and is co-founder of the iThrive Plan, a mobile web application that creates customized wellness plans for cancer survivors. Dr. Alshuler works as an independent consultant in the area of practitioner and consumer health education. And I just want to say that uh, Dr. L. Schuler has been a mentor to many of us um, over the years, myself included. I've learned much from her teaching, uh, and I've also had the privilege to uh, receive some assistance on patient cases. So, you know, again, I'm just really delighted to have you here, Elise. Welcome to New Frontiers. Well, thank you. That was a very generous introduction, and I'm delighted to be talking with you and all of your practitioner and patient listeners today. Oh, great. So let's just jump right in and talk about the huge, huge topic of uh, cancer prevention. I know there's amazing research coming down the pike around this. What are your thoughts on uh, cancer as a preventable, a preventable illness and, you know, just some of the research out there? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the question about is cancer preventable is still very much alive in the scientific literature and a topic of debate among researchers and oncologists. And I think it's actually a legitimate debate, honestly. Um, mm -hmm. I would articulate that, yes, absolutely, we can reduce our risk of cancer. So in that sense, cancer is preventable. I think that we can, we can confidently say that a third of all cancers, and in some cases, depending on the cancer, half of all cancers, and maybe even more in the case of colon cancer, maybe 75% of colon cancers are preventable through lifestyle changes. That being said, I think for an individual when they're contemplating this question, it really becomes how much can I lower my risk through how I live my life? Mm -hmm. And I think most people can't get their risk down to zero, but they can significantly reduce their risk. And so I think it's really a matter of risk reduction because there's still the spontaneous mutations that happen 
that can arise regardless of, you know, what somebody does, what somebody eats, et cetera. There are environmental factors that are hard to control. Yeah. Um, and there are, you know, genetic SNPs that increase susceptibility. So there are certain elements that are not changeable. Yeah, right, right. Okay. Um, you know, I know we're going to jump into some of the things that you recommend for uh, prevention, but I just want to throw out there that um, I'll be pinging you on the idea of periodic fasting and, you know, just the ketogenic diet as a, as a periodic uh, tool to aid in prevention, and then actually how you use that therapeutically. But we'll, we'll jump into that in a second. Um, you have a personal connection to cancer, um, can you want to talk about that and maybe, and maybe how that's informed your work? Yeah, you know, I think it's important because it's not just an abstract concept for me. It's very much relevant to me as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, I lost my father to pancreatic cancer, and he was just an amazing testament to the power of integrative therapies. He was diagnosed with advanced pancreatic cancer, as many people are. He was given about a three-month prognosis, which was true, given what I I saw in his scans. Mm -hmm. But he ended up living for 17 months, and what was most remarkable is that the majority of that time, really up until the last couple of months of his life, was really high-quality life. He felt very well. Wow, that's great. So to me, that gave me huge motivation to, to make sure that Every single person diagnosed with cancer has the ability to, to use integrative therapies. Of course, I got to learn that lesson really well myself when I was diagnosed with breast cancer and, again, through my own experience, um, went through conventional treatments, a lot of them, and at the same time, obviously, used naturopathic and lifestyle-based therapies and really felt like a healthy person going through breast cancer with a healthy person getting chemo, a healthy person getting radiation, et cetera, which is a big deal in uh, oncology treatment. So, um, you know, having now been through cancer, of course, I have heightened concern about cancer reappearing in my life and take all this pretty seriously just from a personal perspective. Um, So, yeah, it's imbued for me all of this with a lot of acute relevance. Yeah, indeed. What... um... You know, I just, I mean, are there any, anything that you learned in the process that, you know, any pearls from the, from, from your own experience or the process of working with your dad? Um, or do you want to share with, with me when I get into some of the specifics around your book? Uh, you know, there's so many pearls. I mean, really this is a, a, you know, something I can do deep dives into on a regular basis. I guess what comes to mind right off the bat is that, Um, there's something very clarifying about a diagnosis of cancer because it typically happens to people when they're generally feeling well in other respects, and all of a sudden they're sort of blasted with this you-could-die sort of diagnosis. And in order to move you out of that, you know, threatening place, you are going to offer you some really toxic treatments. Yeah. (laughs) And so it's, it's very disruptive. And But with that disruption comes the ability to reaffirm what's important in life and decisions that are made are made with a lot of attention to the whys. Mm. And so I think that there's a sort of an, a clarity and a sense of congruence which comes from a diagnosis. So when you're working with people who are going through or have gone through this experience, the, um, 
pardon my language, it's a BS meter yes. <laughs> for people who have been through this diagnosis. It's pretty acute. So, you know, I think as a practitioner, it's really important to be very honest with yourself, to be very present with people because they'll pick up on that very quickly. Right. And the more present, the more sensitive you are to just being very true to the moment with your patients, the more healing potential you're going to reap with, uh, through that relationship. So that's just the first thing that comes to mind. Right. That's actually, that's such an important pearl, you know, just being really authentic, truthful. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So, so you, you know, you're, we're, you focus a lot on prevention and um, in the definitive guide to cancer and then the definitive guide to thriving after cancer, you talk about five key bodily pathways that are really linked um, can you just articulate what what your thinking is on these on these pathways, what they are, and and, and some yeah, thinking around them? Sure. You know, I think for all of us involved in especially integrative health, where we're just inundated with the millions and millions of data bits out yes. there, it's helpful to create categories to mm-hmm. kind of house the information that we're trying to assimilate. So for me, as I was looking through the literature linking various therapies and understandings with cancer prevention and cancer treatment, it became very clear that there were essentially five buckets and that these um, areas had the most influence on somebody's potential to develop cancer or to develop its recurrence. So um, that's been a helpful way for me to think about all my therapies. So, for example, when people come in to see me for initial primary prevention or for tertiary prevention of recurrence, I really go through this checklist of these five areas in my head and make sure that I have therapies that are addressing all these areas. So the areas are inflammation, Mm -hmm. and by that, of course, I mean chronic inflammation typically, although there is some interesting data to suggest that perhaps acute inflammatory events might also create opportunity for signals to develop that could could create cancer development, but let's just leave it at chronic inflammation for now. Um, second area is immunity, and we know that people who develop cancer tend to have uh, depressed cytotoxic immunity, so the imbalance is one uh, that really uh, calls us to stimulate both cytotoxic T-cell activity as well as innate immunity and primarily uh, natural killer cell activity. Third area is uh, what I call hormonal balance, which by itself doesn't really mean much, but specifically with regards to cancer, what I'm really thinking of is balancing the stress response system, the role of mm. stress and a, a hyperactivated or, or kind of upregulated hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis is quite significant. So we really want to make sure we address that. Uh, and then included, of course, for people who are at risk for or who have had a history of estrogen or other hormonal-dependent cancers, we need to pay attention to those hormones as well. Uh, The fourth area would be insulin resistance, and this is kind of a big umbrella for me now, which is is about insulin resistance, which has really emerged as a primary driver for cancer because insulin is such a strong mitogen. Uh, But... Having said that, there's also within this umbrella now this idea of just, um, you know, kind of being over, inundated with calories, being overfed and the implications of that, right. as well as the this composition of our macronutrients. 
And then the final category would be detoxification. So this is really where I look at not only kind of what people are bringing into their system that they have to detoxify, but uh, trying to tie in the environmental component of their life. So, you know, if I have in my approach something that addresses people's health in all of those areas, then I can be pretty confident that I have a fairly comprehensive approach to that individual. Wow, that's great. That's very really useful breakdown of the areas that we need to be thinking about. Thank you so much. Um, mm-hmm. I appreciate it. And I, I so so in in thinking about um, preventative strategies, you you know you're looking at five areas here uh, as well, specifically spirit, uh, movement, diet. Um, dietary supplements, um, and then and rejuvenation. So talk about this, how you look at these in guiding patients um, with regard to right. prevention. So, you know, it's one thing to say we have these five uh, sort of physiological areas that we need to address, the ones I just went through, inflammation, yes. immunity, insulin resistance, et cetera. Then the next question is, okay, that's all fine, but how then do I address those areas? So this is sort of another layer to this matrix that I build in my head. And the, the five ways in which I try to address each of those areas is those ways you just mentioned. So just to take those one at a time, uh, I'll start with spirit because spirit is something that is, I think, perhaps underutilized in integrated practice. Yeah. It's such an important part of healing. You know, and spirit is not religious per se. It's really a values-based life. So it's, and it's, for us as practitioners, it's do we talk to our patients about what it is that gets them excited about being alive in this world? Do they have love in their life? Do they feel that they're a part of community? How do they, you know, how does that feel to them? How does that show up for them? Those are the kind of questions that we need to help them ask themselves and then be in a position to support them in optimizing because it's really, for me, spirit is where we ask ultimately the question, for the sake of what? For the sake of what am I spending all this effort changing my diet? For the sake of what am I taking these supplements every day? And when we get to that core level, that's where people's motivation is. That's where their wellness truly arises from. Right. A really important part. Right. Well, and you talk about uh, how, you know, just you, you, you've just mentioned how the, the BS meter, you know, is just very heightened and sensitive with, with, with mm-hmm. active in patients with active cancer. And, you know, they need to be real. And I'm sure, you know, in spirit is the, these kinds of con- conversations are really a natural outcropping of that. And yet, um, you know, you're talking about this in prevention, like bringing these important conversations front and center. I mean, not just in our patients, but obviously in ourselves. You know, living, walking the walking the, the talk. So it's a great point on both ends. You know, bringing spirit into life. Yeah, and um, can you still hear me okay? Because you were breaking up a little bit, so I want to make sure you can hear me. Oh, well. yep, I can hear you fine. Yep. Okay. Perfect. Um, yeah, uh, uh, so, so important, and for all the reasons you just said, exquisitely important for people diagnosed with cancer. Um, so that's one sort of strategy, as I call it. Another is to 
always, I always talk to my patients about movement or exercise, and it really has two aspects to it. So of all the strategies available to us, people who regularly exercise across the board will reduce their risk of most major cancers by about 50%. Mm. That's more than any dietary strategy. That's more than anything else that so far we've been able to measure. So it's a pretty important strategy to talk to people about. Yes. Um, so, you know, exercise, and we know more now, too, about the fact that not only is that sort of 30 minutes of moderately brisk walking five days a week the, the baseline, yep. but we now know that more is better. So getting more vigorous exercise adds prevention benefits, exercising longer adds more prevention benefits. Wow. And then the second part to movement, which is equally as important, actually, is not being sedentary. And I, I, t- I told the story before, but I about <clears throat> four years ago or so, I mean, it was three years ago, I was doing a lot of reading on sedentarism mm-hmm. and, you know, it's called the new smoking and we're yes. talking about cancer risk. And I exercise every day and I realized, oh, my gosh, I exercise every day, but I'm sedentary mm-hmm. because I would be in front of my computer all day long, sometimes for hours on end. Yes. And it was a really good awareness for me that it's easy to be sedentary in our modern world. So making sure people get up every 90 minutes, do their two minutes of activity is so important and, and actually can also reduce cancer risk and risk of cancer recurrence quite significantly. So movement, really important to talk now, to people about. So so that's that's a great that the research is moving past beyond this the 30-minute the vigorous walk five days a week and, and intensity is recognized as beneficial. I mean, obviously, this would be within the patient's tolerance level or the individual's tolerance level. Um, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, and pushing beyond wouldn't be, uh, certainly wouldn't be useful until the body's ready for it. Um, you know, just thinking about, God, you know, when I was in school, I rode my bike everywhere. I didn't own a car and, and, and I was active just all the time because I'd have to ride to clinic and then ride to class. And, you know, since I, I'm a, I'm a desk jockey now and it really is a struggle to, um, mm-hmm. to get my movement. And so I've, I've, I'm trying to hold myself accountable with one of those wearable Fitbits and, you know, just little things to remind me. And I've just gotten this, this funky chair that sort of rolls around a little bit, but, um, yeah, it, that's been, it's been really challenging for me. Um, yeah, but I'm it doing is, it. It is for practitioners. This is a really big issue because think about it. We, sit and listen to patients most of the day, then we sit and do our charting, and then we're tired, and we come home, we sit and eat dinner, and maybe we sit and watch TV. I mean, we can be very sedentary as practitioners, and so it's a a really important thing for us to be aware of, you know, from a self-reflection standpoint. Yeah, I know. Um, And then as we develop strategies that help us, we can impart those to our patients as well. But but I want to go back to your comment, too, about the tolerance. The way that I describe this to patients is that I want patients to always be at the edge of their fitness. And, you know, Susie's edge is going to be different than Mark's edge is going to be different than my edge, but that they're always kind of at that place where they're not totally comfortable with activity, that it's always causing them to push just a little bit. For -hmm. people who tend to over push, um, the general rule of thumb that I've come up with that seems to really help people self-regulate is that I tell them that if they go out and they do a walk for 30 minutes, 
that it should take them no more than half of that time period that they've exercised to recover their pre-energy exercise level. So if they walk for 30 minutes, they should come back, and if they're tired, they should be kind of back to feeling good within 15 minutes. If it takes them longer than that, they've, they've overdone it. And it, it seems to help people kind of self-moderate their level as they're especially getting out of recovery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's just so much cool research around exercise, you know, just the, the hormesis um, ideas around it, you know, just influencing I mean, obviously, we're increasing oxidative stress because we're turning on, you know, mitochondria and energy mm-hmm. production, and then, but then we we sweep right in with the various tools to clean it up. Um, so we, mm-hmm. you know, we're upregulating detoxification and you know glutathione and you know superoxide dismutase and all of that. So it's just it's 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 quite remarkable. Um, yeah, and I, yeah, I love just, I mean, I could talk about exercise all day long, so you don't have to cut me off. But I know, I know. <laughs> I actually really love that you brought up hormesis because it's true, you know, the research shows that when you do an intense bout of exercise, your oxidative stress is super high. Cranks up, yeah. Right afterwards. Yeah. But then people who regularly exercise overall have a much better redox potential on a cellular level. So. Yeah, there's just something that happens with that kind of in and in day in day out type of thing. And then there's the myokines, which are excreted by exercising muscles. Those were just discovered several years ago, so we didn't even know about those ten years ago. But those directly counter the uh, effects of insulin. So it's a great. That's one of the reasons why it's so important to exercise when you have insulin resistance. Yes, that's. Thank you for that. I um, I'll have to look into myokines. It's, it's really interesting, and I know. And then I'll I'll hush on this, but I just because it is such an interesting area. Um, <laughs> you know, research coming out that taking, actually, it's not even that new. Taking antioxidants right after exercise and quenching that oxidative process and and the sort of the 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 horm- the hormetic response is a bad idea. Um, and so, right. you know, just thinking mm-hmm. about timing with regard to when we take our, our supplements and I know we're going to get into talking about that in a minute, but I think quenching, quenching that, um, action, that post-exercise metabolic cleanup isn't, you know, isn't a good idea, but there's a time, there's an appropriate time to take them. And I don't know if the research is out on that, if, if it's actually defined when the optimal time is to take our supplements and our various ox- antioxidants, but, um, you know, I always advise not, you know, not after exercise, maybe in the morning or, or at night, you know, after your events, right. but anything, have you seen anything on that as far as timing goes for supplementation? No, you know, the, yeah, the only data I've seen is probably the data you're referring to, which is pretty old by now, actually, yeah. on vitamin E and timing that. And I think to your point, uh, it seems like just taking it either before or away from right. exercise just at least doesn't avoid that immediate quenching effect on that those oxidants. Yes, yeah, and just allows the body to do it. Okay, um, massive, massive topic that you and I have talked about over the years, diet. Um, mm. And now you're now. I would say two things. We're you know talking about prevention, and also we you know you can make some. I'd, I'd love to hear your comments, and you know as a part of therapy for cancer patients. Yeah. Well, I'll make a couple of general comments, and then I think you know you can just sort of ask me specific questions because this is such a broad topic. But 
I'll just say, generally speaking, that from a prevention standpoint, I think hands down, the basis for diet should be a Mediterranean style of eating. Um, that's the best researched evidence-based diet plan for prevention of cancer, and it's essentially translated to a plant-based diet. So there's also it's also very mm. uh, easily adapted by most people. So it's a great place to start. And then on top of that, there's a whole bunch of nuances from a prevention standpoint. But the other generalization I'll make is that it is absolutely with diet uh, inappropriate to automatically assume that what's useful from a dietary perspective in active disease is also useful from a prevention standpoint or vice versa. Because in many cases, it's the exact opposite, that what's useful from a prevention standpoint is actually potentially harmful from a treatment standpoint. Case in point, mm -hmm. antioxidants. This is a little bit you know, diet and dietary supplements, but mm -hmm. high doses of antioxidants or a, you know, strongly glutathione-rich diet, wonderful from a prevention standpoint for lots of reasons. Yes. Um, but it actually can be harmful if somebody has active cancer because can it helps cancer cells gain resistance to cytotoxic therapies and facilitates various mechanisms that allow them to become more invasive. So, that's just one example, but there are many like that, so we have to be very careful when we're talking about diet and applying what we've learned to make sure that we're applying it in the right context. Okay, so you're thinking about, um, the, and thank you for that, and, and uh, you know, we, you and I were just chatting about methylation, so I want to ask you about that in a sec, uh, and with, you know, your thoughts on a, on, on how you might approach it, approach that with prevention and active disease, but... Um, so, so Mediterranean as a major preventative tool, and then in active treatment, um, I know I, I, you do prescribe the calorie restricted ketogenic diet, I believe. But you know, any comments on on diets you, you're using in active treatment? Well, it depends. You know, so the ketogenic diet can be useful for certain patients. It's a it's a hard diet to follow for yes. people who are in active disease because. Yes. Uh, cancer is a very catabolic process, so it's it's hard for people to energy restrict. And the ketogenic yes. diet that can be helpful as an anti-proliferating diet is not just you know eating most of your calories from fat, but it's significantly calorically restricted as well. Yes. So it's it's I would say for a fairly small slice of the pie in terms of your patient population. Having said that. Um, you know, there are certain cancer types where I immediately think of it. The most obvious one would be brain cancers, gliomas in particular, mm -hmm. because the, the database is fairly good. I mean, it's not great. There's not a lot of studies on this in general, but there are some good case studies that have been published. And uh, it seems that the metabolism of cancer in the brain is quite different, so that there's more... Um, there's more uh, reliance on ketones in the brain um, for healthy cells, but malignant cells in the brain are not able to take up those ketones, so it, it kind of creates a bigger differential in the brain. Um, so, yeah, I think there's potential for this diet. Have I seen it cure cancer? I have not. Have I seen it slow cancers down? I believe I have seen yes. that in my practice. Have I had a patient that's been able to sustain this for years and years and years? Not yet. Yeah, right. <laughs> Most of my, my longest patient was able to hang in there for about a year, 
And then she said, I'm done with this diet. I can't do it anymore. And so she's not on it anymore. So, there, you know, there's some adherence issues, too. You know, I did a, I was actually talking to Tom Seyfried, who was, I think really put it on the map with his research mm-hmm. in mice. And um, he is looking at it as being, you know, a tool similar to chemotherapy and that we really need to talk about pulsing it and, you know, when we apply mm-hmm. it for, and, and duration and that's big stuff. And I have, you know, I have patients, I have people coming to my practice often having already initiated it themselves. Um, <laughs> and you're right, it's it's extremely difficult to follow and it's difficult to achieve the, you know, therapeutic levels of uh, ketone production and, 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 you know, drop in corresponding drop in glucose. It's, it's hard and fatigue is, is often a really big fallout. So, um, there's much to be learned here. I, I, I agree with you. I think it can be a helpful tool and I've seen it. I, I, I also have seen what appears to be success uh, in a handful of patients, and I've also seen a lot of people not be able to fall, uh, to follow it, and you know side effects such as probably fatigue. Mm-hmm. I did. I did. Dr. Eugene Fine, are you familiar? He he published a small pilot study where he did look at cancers outside of uh, brain tumors with some success. Those folks who were able to get to the highest level of ketone production appeared to have some reduction. Um, very small mm-hmm. pilot study. Um, breast cancer, I believe, lung cancer, and a handful of others. Um, yeah. But it's super small, so you can't extrapolate too much from that. But uh, I agree with you. Right. I think there's a place for it, and, you know, there's much to be learned, and, you know, we're probably over-using it. Certainly patients appear to be, or, you know, individuals just jumping on it aggressively and um, with some fallout. Right. And and in that study, I find you know he had it was very small. I like it's at ten. Yes. Um, ten patients, and only um, only five had stable disease or partial remission. So we're not talking about That's right. cures. So really, fifty percent had some you know relative response to that treatment. So I think from a clinical translation perspective, you know that means that you're going to theoretically have to rec- have to get ten patients on this to get five who will have some disease stabilization. In another pilot study uh, that was published by Schmidt, he actually had really limited success because he had such a high dropout rate. So, mm-hmm. you know, from a clinical perspective, to get those five, yes. you're actually probably going to have to start with a lot more patients because you're going to have to count for all the drop-offs that you're going to get just due to the challenges with adherence. Right. That's right. He did. I think those five that were successful did get into the most aggressive ketosis um, and he didn't. Yeah, he didn't. Right. He didn't calorie restrict in his either. Interestingly, but right. Um, right. yeah, you know. But I'm I'm with you. There's much to be learned, um, and just jumping into it without some attention, you know, is I think potentially damaging. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about supplements. Another huge area with tons of mixed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think data and also just mixed internet lore around what to do. So what are you thinking about? Yeah. Well, you know, obviously this is a huge topic, but um, there, I prescribe dietary supplements to all of my patients. So yep. right there tells you that I believe that they have a role to play. I think that the way I describe it to my patients is that, you know, diet and exercise are, are kind of broad sweeping tools. 
And with dietary supplements, I'm attempting to, to apply a, a more fine, a finer tool and actually trying to manipulate pathways in the body. And I think that that's, in fact, what I believe supplements are doing. Um, in reality, I think that they're even kind of broad tools and that what we're actually manipulating is our very precise and very dynamic pathways that are up and down regulated by a variety of things that we're not even thinking about nowadays, you know, even yes. getting kind of out there and thinking about, you know, light wavelengths and the implication on that yeah. and all these kind of things. So that being said, I do think that dietary supplements uh, are a way to offer some degree of precision to our therapies. And um, I think that what we can see with these supplements is that we can, from a prevention standpoint, we can affect those five pathways really effectively. So we know that there are supplements that can help reduce insulin resistance. So we would first assess to see if somebody has insulin resistance. We check their fasting glucose and insulin and throw those values into a, a HOMA IR calculator, determine if they're insulin resistant, and if they are or they're pre-diabetic or diabetic, then we want to make sure that we're addressing insulin resistance and supplements really help with that. Yes. Um, we know that there are you know supplements that are really good at reducing chronic inflammation, and we can, again, there's biomarkers of inflammation in the body that we can assess for and watch you know those to see, make sure they, those go down. Even if they're not elevated, you know, as, and people seem yes. inflamed, they have issues which are suggestive of chronic inflammation, then I'm going to assume that that's happening mm-hmm. on a tissue level and apply, you know, flavonoids like curcumin and things like that to reduce inflammation. So, yeah, I think that supplements are really important. And there, there are good studies now for several of these supplements that really do show benefit in terms of both prevention and then, of course, if somebody has cancer, ways to help modify that outcome as well. Well, give me a couple of ideas. I would be remiss if I didn't try to nail you down on some, on some supplements <laughs> that you're using routinely. So um, insulin, okay. res- in- insulin resistance, what are, what are a couple of things that you're going to um, often? And these are in cancer patients, so we're not talking about prevention now. We're talking about um, your cancer patients. Okay. Uh, so with insulin resistance, um, one of the first things that comes to mind is berberine. Yeah. And berberine uh, restores insulin sensitivity. It activates AMPK. Um, it reduces uh, hepatic gluconeogenesis, um, inhibits fatty acid synthesis, particularly in the liver. So it really has very clear mechanisms by mm-hmm. which it reduces insulin resistance. And uh, we've seen it on a dose, you know, milligram per milligram basis to, to be comparable with metformin in a couple of clinical studies. So yep. I think that that's one of the first things that I look at. Um, berberine per se doesn't have necessarily uh, good evidence as an anti-cancer therapy, but because of what it's doing to insulin resistance and the insulin resistance or insulin receptor pathway, um, I and have, I've inferred some benefit uh, yes. in terms of it being a you know having some antineoplastic effects. So that would be kind of one of my first go-tos. Yes. Um, another one that I would mention, and I don't know you know how many people are aware of tocotrienols, but you know this these uh, vitamin E isomers, different than the tocopherols, very small molecules, very flexible molecules. 
so they have very different uh, molecular effects, and uh, they also have been shown to improve glucose balance and improve insulin sensitivity. They reduce inflammatory markers in a variety of different cellular and animal studies primarily, um, and but, but they're very, they have pretty good effects in terms of improving insulin sensitivity. And so from a prevention standpoint in particular, I think tocotrienols have a really important role to play. Um, so that, I guess that would be my second go-to. If somebody's in active disease, I still think about tocotrienols because they do actually induce apoptosis. Mm-hmm. So they do have an anti-neoplastic effect. Um, but I probably would say I, I think about them more often in a preventive standpoint. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Um... Let's see, what else did I want to ask you here? Um, thinking about uh, any, anything's jumped to mind in terms of, of uh, supplementation for uh, hormone balancing. Um, I guess specifically I'm just thinking about uh, estrogen-mediated uh, cancers, what you might go to there. Yeah, you know, so this is complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's say that we're talking about somebody who's been diagnosed, obviously, already, right? So they've had some diagnosis of an estrogen receptor-positive cancer. And most typically, those individuals are going to be on an anti-estrogen type of therapy, whether right. it's a, a serum or a theme. So they're either blocking estrogen production or they're blocking estrogen receptors. So, you know, in that context, uh, if let's take those two separately. So, so let's say they're on an estrogen-blocking medication like tamoxifen, Mm -hmm. I don't really care what their estradiol level is because that drug provides such redundant and ubiquitous estrogen blockade that it really doesn't matter to me Mm -hmm. what their estrogen level is. I don't even care what kind of estrogen they're producing. Um, Now, once they're off that therapy, then it matters a little bit more. Um, However, you know, I don't actually ever measure estrogen metabolites. Um, okay. The data on using estrogen metabolites in somebody who's been through, who's already been diagnosed with cancer and been treated, the, the correlation between the testing results and actually the estrogenic effect is very poor. There's actually been a couple of studies on that, and you know the theory is that there's been too much impact by both the disease and the treatments to make the metabolites a, a reliable measure. So I don't really use metabolites, but what I do do is I will often test for SNPs in estrogen metabolism because what I'm more concerned about is, is this person somebody who is going to be hydroxylating their estrogens down the 4-hydroxylation pathway, which is the most carcinogenic metabolite? And if they're pushing the 4-hydroxylation pathway, are they then able to methylate those uh, metabolites so that they don't form the quinones, which bind to DNA and damage DNA. So I want to know about methylation. Mm-hmm. I want to know about COMP-T. Yeah. And uh, those become very important. And then some of the glutathione transferase enzymes. So I look at SNPs because that tells me if somebody has a lot of those SNPs, which is quite common in people yes. with an estrogen receptor positive cancer, then I know that I need to really pay attention to estrogen metabolism at that level. So I'm looking now at prescribing something like methane okay. or DIM, as people refer to it. I'm looking at uh, 
sulfurosamine. I'm looking at methylation support mm-hmm. to really help modify how estrogen is, is metabolized. To me, that's more important than looking at the ratios that are in the body. Thank you. Very, really nicely stated, very clear. Now, my when I'm looking at the literature on COMT, um, which is the enzyme catechol methyltransferase for converting the hydroxylated estrogen metabolites to their methoxy counterparts. When I'm looking at the literature on that, I'm not seeing, so I'll see the mutation commonly in my patients in practice. I mean, it's a pretty, mm-hmm. pretty ubiquitous finding, but I haven't seen a ton of data on it being associated with increased risk for estrogen-sensitive cancers. But have you? I mean, where, where is the literature with regard to it? Yeah, there is, there's one study um, which I don't know that I can pull up fast enough uh, to talk about at the second, but in detail. But there was a study where they looked at um, a combination of SNPs, and it was kind of a, a landmark study, actually. Okay, I got it. So this is um, a <laughs> study you. looking at the combined effects of SNPs in CYP1B1, COMP-T, uh, GSPP1 or glutathione sulfur transferase, and then um, manganese SOD. And they found that the, the risk for breast cancer or the, 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 they used breast cancer cases to, and translate that into a risk and that the risk of, of having those SNPs was additive. So that, for example, if somebody had uh, a SNP in CYP1B1, which means they're going to produce more for hydroxylated estrogens yep. and a COMP-T SNP, then they have 100% increased risk. Wow. If they have a COMP-T SNP and an SOD risk, they have 100% increased risk. Wow. If they have CYP1B1, COMP-T, and glutathione S-transferase, they have 170% increased risk. Wow. If they have CYP1B1, COMP-T, glutathione, GSTP1, plus manganese SOD, 1,100% increased risk. Jeez. So... Um, to go. me, this study is really important. It was published in the Journal of Gynecological Oncology in 2011 by mm-hmm. CERN and colleagues, and I think that uh, that's the best data point that we have. Yes. Um, there are some other you know, data points and studies on COMP-T specifically, and especially uh, polymorphisms of COMP-T increase in the risk of breast cancer, I think on the order of about 30% okay. increased risk. Okay. Well, thanks so much for that citation. And folks, I will, um, I'll, I'll get the reference and, and put it on the transcripts page. So, so look for it. And, um, it's just really huge and it'll be interesting to see because we can manipulate naturally. We can impact how, you know, functionality of those enzymes just really support them in certain ways. And so it'll be nice to actually have our own data pool, you know, to add to the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So, and just to really make an important footnote on this, so this is another good example of where we want to support methylation for these reasons yes. when we're thinking about prevention. But if mm-hmm. somebody has active disease, a lot of the a whole category of new therapies in oncology care are demethylating agents, um, and that there's some thought that if you support methylation, actually in active tumors, you you give you add more chromosomal stability within malignant cells, and you actually support uh, tumor genesis. So questionable about whether we want to really give too much methylation support during active 
disease that needs to be kind of taken up on an individual basis, but I would just certainly put a footnote of caution on that. Awesome. And we and that brings us back. I wanted to talk to you about methylation. I've I, my own approach to it has evolved considerably, and I'm working upstream, you know, with with diet and lifestyle interventions, which I think the data are suggesting they can profoundly impact healthy methylation DNA. So we're talking about the epigenome mm-hmm. here, folks. Um, uh, cool research on 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 exercise and supporting you know global balanced. Um, methylation. Actually, there's some pretty neat research out there on flavonoids actually having, you know, Mm -hmm. the ability to inhibit DNA methylation and it just almost like an adaptogenic thing we've been, we've been calling it. So I think there's good reason to be cautious with this high dose methyl donor uh, intervention um, because the epigenome is, is in our research, there's a bit of the wild west, but hypermethylation, as you pointed out, is a big player in oncogenesis yeah well and it's kind of interesting because still though from a preventive standpoint i would err on the side of giving people methylation support yes only because the first you know epigenetic event in in carcinogenesis global hypomethylation and then what happens after that is you get these hypermethylated cpg islands that are sitting right in front of tumor repressor and tumor repair genes so You want to kind of direct the traffic, and I think that's yes. where these flavonoids are so fascinating. Yes. You're right. These, like EGCG, they sort yes. of pull the methyl groups off of those hypermethylated yes. areas. It's like they know exactly where methyls are, are supposed to be sitting. Right. It's just, I mean, it's just extremely interesting and cool. And you're right, like these, this hypomethylation, well, it's almost like the folate story, I mean, which is, of course, key mm-hmm. in healthy methylation. I mean... It's that U-curve. Methylation has a U-curve as much as any of these other things that we're talking about. So insufficient folate, of course, right. can you know, allow for the development of cancer, whereas excess folate clearly and probably through imbalanced methylation can promote. Um, thank you. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I, I would, I'd love to pick your brain on this more because I mean, you've been thinking about it a lot and it's been an interest of ours over here. Um, any just okay so just finalizing the supplements i mean we don't have endless amount of time here but um so, so any key supplements that come to mind just for prevention i know we were talking about antioxidants before and how you put the brakes on them during active therapy so um just prevention uh, a couple of supplements mm-hmm. you might use that you wouldn't use in active treatment yeah well uh my sort of top list of of supplements to consider for prevention, I'll maybe talk about as categories, but and these aren't necessarily precluded during active disease. Um, so vitamin D, of course, is first on my list. There's you know clear evidence now that vitamin D insufficiency is associated with increased risk of developing cancer, increased risk of progressing with cancer if already diagnosed. So really important. Uh, so test and treat according to people's values. Uh, I think another really important area of supplementation with regards to prevention are flavonoids in yes. general. I, I rely on them a lot, actually. Um, flavonoids have such, you know, not only what we just talked about with directing traffic in terms of the methylation, but flavonoids also influence a lot of intracellular uh, redox pathways and translate oxidative insults on mm-hmm. the cell membrane and they 
they, they help to maintain or to protect the cell from sustaining a lot of, you know, mutational damage. That's a big shorthand to very complex biochemistry. But having said that, you know, I think some of the heavy hitters are curcumin for sure, yep. uh, EGCG from green tea, resveratrol, quercetin. Um, uh, those would be some of the top ones that I would think about. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, kind of stepping back a little bit more, I think about just nutritional repletion with things that lower inflammatory potential like essential fatty acids, both EPA, DHA, and again, there's, you know, good data on the reduction of inflammation, peroxidation, all of which can be carcinogenic. Um, So that would be another consideration from a prevention standpoint. You know, the area of the microbiome and its relationship to carcinogenesis is just being explored. There is definitely a relationship there. And there's a lot of translation that happens through the immune system, but it's clear that that we have to pay attention to the microbiome. So I think if particularly somebody has digestive issues, then it's really important to get those corrected and then to uh, make sure people have, as best as we can tell, (laughs) a good microbiome. Yes. Um, (laughs) So probiotics, therefore, might play a role. Yeah. And I guess is my fifth area, I would say that, I tend to uh, look at antioxidative support. Um, I like tocotrienols a lot because I think that they do have that apoptotic potential. And um, I am recently becoming quite enamored of lipoic acid. And there's just some really interesting effects of lipoic acid from a prevention standpoint. And I'll mention one just because mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting stuff. So there are, there's this theory of cancer recurrence which has to do with stem cells that are very immune, unfortunately, to chemotherapy and, and sometimes radiation, and that they seed tumors, <clears throat> and then they can kind of stay dormant and even float around as these uh, uh, what we call mesenchymal stem cells in the blood. So they're par- you know, fairly undifferentiated, and they can be dormant for a long time, but they can also get re-triggered to uh, invade back into tissue and then restart a tumor. So we have to pay attention to these circulating uh, tumor cells, especially this EMT transitioned cell. So back to lipoic acid, it turns out that alpha-lipoic acid helps to prevent this mesenchymal transition. So it's a really nice way to help to mitigate some of the danger, if you will, of these circulating uh, cancer stem cells. Plus, it just has a really nice um, uh, potential within the cell to, to, you know, prevent some of the mutational damage that can exist there. It helps regulate and improve mitochondrial functions. I'm quite enamored of lipoic acid lately. (laughs) Yeah, it's understood, (laughs) understood. You know, I used to call it when I was at the lab and we were researching, um, you know, for the book that we, the Laboratory of Al's book, it was the antioxidants, antioxidant, and it's, capacity uh-huh. to <laughs> the antioxidants because it can regenerate so many so many of these players like vitamin C and so forth um, yeah right okay what else do we want to talk about here I you know what about are I mean obviously having a background in lab laboratory science I'm you know I've, I find a lot of utility in some of the um, 
you know, look, doing stool analysis and some of the broader investigations of specialty testing. And I, I don't, what, what are you using in practice? Are there, what are some of the go-to tests you might use in prevention and maybe, you know, even when you're um, treating cancer patients, anything? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I do like to get some laboratory evaluation when possible. So, um, you know, at a basic level, I, I like to look for certain biomarkers of, of inflammation and insulin resistance. So I talked about fasting, glucose and insulin, hemoglobin A1C. For inflammation, some of the things I look at are, you know, at a basic level, I definitely want to see what high-sensitivity CRP is, uh, look at fibrinogen, um, Sometimes may do some cytokine analysis, depending on the history. Like if somebody's had pretty aggressive cancer in the past, I might look at IL-6 and IL-8. Okay. Um, and from a, a sort of hormonal level, I tend to, like I said, look more at, at SNPs mm-hmm. in some of those <clears throat> methylation and detoxification enzymes. Um a morning cortisol, though, or even better, a four-point four cortisol test can be quite helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't do a lot of digestive analysis unless people have digestive issues, and then I really want to make sure that we get their digestive tract online for lots and lots of reasons. And in that case, you know, I think it, it can be quite helpful to do, you know, if I'm worried about inflammatory bowel disease or IBS, fecal calprotectin, or some of these other, you know, just good comprehensive digestive stool analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the only other test that I do run sometimes is an organic acid test. I think that can really help me get a view into metabolism and yeah. methylation, kind of just touch points on lots of different areas. Thanks. Um, this has been a real tour de force, Lise. I just, I just really, this has been very valuable. And I mean, I think a lot of people really enjoy this as well. I mean, I've just learned a lot. But now people wanting to pursue uh, additional training. So clinicians looking to get, um, you know, do some of the drill down and, and explore some of these areas you've talked about. What, what, what are some resources folks can turn to? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a great question, and the answer is going to be just completely unsatisfying, I think. But, um, the, you know, first of all, the Oncology Association of Naturopathic Physicians, Onc AMP, is a great resource for naturopathic doctors and allied professionals as well can join oh, as allied members. And there's, you know, okay. we have great conference every year. Um, there's a really active forum, and so there's, there's a good data exchange there. Um, there are... You know, there's not really a text per se that that I would direct clinicians to to kind of dive deep into these areas. The way I and most of my colleagues can try to keep ourselves up to date is just to be really avid. We have a voracious appetite for PubMed and just, you know, are on listservs and we're just looking at articles of interest and combing through them on a regular basis to try to pick up these tidbits and sort of piece the tidbits together into our, our own understanding. And I, I, you know, I can't really offer more than that. I think that, you know, finding clinicians that you trust and that are open to having a mentor relationship with is another great opportunity to learn. And there are good conferences, I think, available now in addition to the Onc AMP, which have a nice train of oncology in there too. 
And just going to conventional oncology conferences is a great way to pick up knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't get the natural side of things, but you can get a really deep dive into the molecular biology and just understanding the disease process itself. And you are, you'll consult with clinicians. Are you, are you doing that, consulting, doing case consultations still? Are you offering that service? Um, you know, I, I will in my practice. If a, it, what I tend to do is if a clinician has a patient that they want some help on, then uh, I can set up a professional consult with the, with the clinician and we'll get some information about the patient ahead of time and then give, kind of guide the, pa- the clinician with, with what I would think would be important considerations. So, yeah, I do offer those, and some of my colleagues offer that as well. Um, so, yeah, that would be another resource. What about TAP, integrative? Uh, that's a good... Um... Yeah, what about TAP? <laughs> are you guys going to... That gonna... is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, will you, are, you, are you jumping into this topic at TAP? Would this be another resource? We, we do have some, yep. We actually have, we have a great um, TAP feature on colon cancer prevention. We have an upcoming one on prostate cancer. Um, And I have to just thank you for being a TAP expert on autoimmune disease. (laughs) That, in fact, is our current expose, our free entree into TAP. People can check it out by looking at uh, TAP Integrative Sneak Peek. And um, so, you know, and one other thing I should say about tapintegrative.org is that for practitioners who um, really want to just kind of get clinically relevant information. There's great resources on there. And we have a member benefit, which is that you can request full-text articles from PubMed of your choosing whenever you'd like. Wow. It's easy to do. And uh, it's free. So you pay your membership after three articles, typically. So, I mean, for people who are like, yeah, I Jeez. love PubMed, but I can't get the full text, this is a great way to get that. Well, you need to be blasting that out. That's huge. I know, um, right? That's huge. <laughs> you really need to blast it. So, folks, the 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 link to tap will be on the um, the the page for this uh, this webinar, so you guys can head over there and 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 check it out. It is a really wonderful resource. All right, Dr. Schiller, it was wonderful to touch base with you, and thank you so much for uh, sharing your brain with us today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you.